Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, April 25th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the latest on a proposed passenger train line from New Orleans to Mobile. And today is Confederate Memorial Day in Mississippi. We'll look at the important and painful history all Mississippians share. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Amtrak is making its case to federal regulators about the need for a twice-daily passenger line connecting New Orleans to Mobile, Alabama, with four stops along the Mississippi coast. But it's getting pushback from freight operators who worry it will cause delays. WWNO's Patrick Madden talks with Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom about why it's taken more than a decade for Amtrak to return to the Gulf Coast. It comes down to the fact that these railroads are not owned by Amtrak. They're not owned by the government. They're owned by private companies. In this case, it's a CSX and Norfolk Southern. They would rather it mostly be used for freight trains. That's where the real money is versus passenger uh, train service. And so th- they've been in negotiations with Amtrak for this for many, many years. Well, according to the railroads, they were about to complete this long study was a few months away from actually determining how much these Amtrak trains would get in the way of their freight service. Amtrak pulled out and said, this is just continuing to stall this whole process. CSX is not giving us the information we need to actually figure out how this line would run properly. So they decided to uh, use this law that hasn't really been used before that would allow Amtrak to force itself onto the tracks, to force the railroad to cooperate. And that's what they're fighting over right now. Stephen, obviously this is a big story here in the Gulf South, but are there national implications about about what happens here? Yeah, because this law that that was created to allow Amtrak to put itself onto these railroads, it's, it's important to know that 1970, at that time, the railroads were required by law to offer passenger rail services, private railroads, and they were losing all this money on it. So Congress stepped in and said, okay, we will take that obligation away from you. But in return, we are going to make Amtrak, and Amtrak is going to be allowed to use your railroads. And it essentially said if you're not going to cooperate with Amtrak, Amtrak was allowed to just kind of force the issue. This has not really been tested yet, and it's being tested for the first time now. So with this 
uh, this is going before federal regulators at the moment. They're hearing uh, both sides argue over it. And what gets decided here with this law is going to determine Amtrak's ambitions to expand elsewhere across the country, whether it's easy for them to, to force themselves on the roads or they have to do all this more research and homework to make the railroads happy. It's going to determine just how the rest of these proceedings go for these like 30-something routes Amtrak plans for the future. And obviously, Stephen, for people who are really hoping uh, to have access to this um, passenger train line, I mean, do we know when we will hear a a final go or no-go decision? Oh, it, it is tough to predict with this line when it's going to act, actually happen. You got to remember there is there was passenger rail service between these cities uh, back before Katrina. Katrina, the damage from Katrina put a stop to that service, and there's been talks pretty much ever since then about trying to restore it. So this has been a long time coming. Right now, we finally have this hearing going on. It was supposed to take two days. That's what they scheduled for it. Instead, it's stretched over three weeks, eight days of hearings, and now there's kind of a bit of a hiatus before they resume these hearings. Uh, on May 9th. And then after that, even if the board decides for or against Amtrak, it's possible this goes to the courts. It gets appealed. So this will be a huge decision when it comes down from these federal regulators, ideally probably in a few weeks or a few months from now. But it might get dragged on much, much longer than that. And and Stephen, uh, last question, more of a a big picture question. But, you know, when you look uh, across the South, there isn't as developed uh, rail networks as perhaps the Northeast or or other parts of the country. I mean, if these lines get connected and we see more usage of of rail, especially passenger rail, what, what can that do for the region and its economy? There might be some commuting on the line, but more likely it is what makes these towns excited, particularly in Mississippi, is the sense of uh, the tourism that it's going to bring. But at the same time, what the railroads are worried about is it disrupting an even more financially impactful industry, and that's the freight industry. If you have more Amtrak trains, the, the question really before the federal regulators right now is, will this just really hurt that industry and end up costing our region even more money at the end of the day? That was Stephen Basahab, the Gulf States Newsroom, talking with WWNO's Patrick Madden. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among public media stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. More Mississippi edition ahead. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. And I'm Michael Guidry, managing editor for MPB News. Each year on the 4th of July, NPR hosts and reporters read the Declaration of Independence in full on air. The reading is broadcast here on MPB Think Radio and on hundreds more NPR stations across the U.S. This annual return to a founding document invites us to reflect on the principles and ideals on which the United States was built. To quote NPR, the Declaration is a document with flaws and deeply ingrained hypocrisies. It also laid the foundation for our collective aspirations, our hopes for what America could be. Today in Mississippi is Confederate Memorial Day, a much different holiday informed by a different founding document. The Mississippi Declaration of Secession is shorter than the Declaration of Independence. It also lacks the idealism that Thomas Jefferson poured into its prose. Mississippi's declaration is instead dedicated to the defense of one racist institution. We invited six leaders and scholars with Mississippi roots to read the document in full. 
Leslie Burrow McLemore, Professor Emeritus of Political Science, Jackson State University. Vaughn Gordon, Executive Director, The Alluvial Collective. I'm Cassie Shade Turnipseed. I'm Assistant Professor of History at Jackson State University and Adjunct Professor at Mississippi Valley State University, as well as the Executive Director of Coffray Inc. And we are the leaders in the building of the Cotton Pickers Monument Project. I'm Stephanie Rolfe, and I am Associate Professor of History at Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi. My name's Robbie Luckett. I'm Director of the Margaret Walker Center and Professor of History at Jackson State University. My name is uh, Ty Sidgley. I'm retired from the Army after 36 years as a Brigadier General. I'm a Professor Emeritus of History at West Point, and I'm a visiting Professor of History at Hamilton College in Clinton, New York. A declaration of the immediate causes which induce and justify the secession of the state of Mississippi from the Federal Union. In the momentous step which our state has taken of dissolving its connection with the government of which we so long formed a part, it is but just that we should declare the prominent reasons which have induced our course. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions and by an imperious law of nature. None but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world, and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. That blow has been long aimed at the institution and was at the point of reaching its consummation. There was no choice left us but submission to the mandates of abolition or a dissolution of the union whose principles have been subverted to work out our ruin that we do not overstate the dangers to our institution, a reference to a few facts will sufficiently prove. The hostility to this institution commenced before the adoption of the Constitution and was manifested in the well-known Ordinance of 1787 in regard to the Northwestern Territory. The feeling increased until, in 1819 to 1820, it deprived the South of more than half the vast territory acquired from France. The same hostility dismembered Texas and seized upon all the territory acquired from Mexico. It has grown until it denies the right of property in slaves and refuses protection to that right on the high seas and the territories and wherever the government of the United States had jurisdiction. It refuses the admission of new slave states into the Union and seeks to extinguish it by confining it within its present limits, denying the power of expansion. It tramples the original equality of the South underfoot. It has nullified the fugitive slave law in almost every free state in the Union and has utterly broken the compact which our fathers pledged their faith to maintain. It advocates Negro equality, socially and politically, and promotes insurrection and incendiarism in our midst. It has enlisted its press, its pulpit, and its schools against us until the whole popular mind of the North is excited and inflamed with prejudice. 
It has made combinations and formed associations to carry out its schemes of emancipation in the states and wherever else slavery exists. It seeks not to elevate or to support the slave, but to destroy his present condition without providing a better. It has invaded a state and invested with the honors of martyrdom, the wretch whose purpose was to apply flames to our dwellings and the weapons of destruction to our lives. It has broken every compact into which it has entered for our security. It knows no relenting or hesitation in its purposes. It stops not in its march of aggression and leaves us no room to hope for cessation or for pause. It has recently obtained control of the government by the prosecution of its unhallowed schemes and destroyed their last expectation of living together in friendship and brotherhood. Utter subjugation awaits us in the Union if we should consent longer to remain in it. It is not a matter of choice, but of necessity. We must either submit to degradation and to the loss of property worth $4 billion of money, or we must secede from the Union framed by our fathers to secure this as well as every other species of property. For far less cause than this, our fathers separated from the crown of England. Our decision is made. We follow their footsteps. We embrace the alternative of separation, and for the reasons here stated, we resolve to maintain our rights with the full consciousness of the justice of our course and the undoubting belief of our ability to maintain it. When were you first exposed to this document? And can you recall what your initial response when you first read it was? The first time I remember was in graduate school when I was getting my grad degree in history at Ohio State, at the Ohio State University. As a graduate student in the university. Finishing up my master's degree at Mississippi State University. And I read The Battle Cry of Freedom by James McPherson. And it had a hundred some pages about the cause of the Civil War. This is this is an argument that has seemed so complicated to me in the past, when actually you could just put the Declaration of Secession in the hands of of someone who believes that the um, Civil War was not that was not fought over slavery, and it would resolve it. What it does is it it really shows us the intentions of the people who made the decision to secede, to leave this state, the white leaders in this state who chose to dissolve their participation in this union for one reason and one reason only, and that was the institution of slavery. And this document repeats it over and over and over again. Slavery, slavery. And when I finally, that it, not, not just into my head, but into my heart, it changed me forever. What shaped your world before that moment? Well, I grew up wanting to be a white Southern gentleman. Often we say a Southern gentleman, but remember, the white is often silent. And I grew up in Virginia wanting to do that. My dad's a Mississippian, and uh, uh, he you know, had this idea of being a gentleman. And who was the greatest gentleman? It was Robert E. Lee. And so when I was growing up as a kid, on a scale of 1 to 10, Robert E. Lee would have been an 11. 
And even though I was a good Episcopalian, went to church every Sunday, I would have put uh, Jesus on like the five or six scale. So it wasn't just that, that Lee and some of the Confederates were good people. It was a reverential treatment. So that's the way I grew up. How is your view of being a Southerner changed uh, since you have dove into this part of American history? Yeah, well, remember that that uh, the state of Mississippi is 38 uh, percent uh, African-American. And remember that in 1860, before secession, there were more enslaved Mississippians than there were free Mississippians, more Mississippians that were of African descent than European descent. So I certainly did not understand that. I didn't understand the social system of slavery. I didn't understand the evil of that system, you know, that where rape was a normal part of, of, of everyday life, where most white men had their first sexual experience with enslaved women, where there were, quote-unquote, breeding of, un, of, of, of uh, enslaved people. So just the, the moral degradation of, this, of, of what slavery was, I didn't understand it, because my textbooks, my culture, my society made it seem that slavery wasn't that bad. You might, as a white person, be able to say, well, I didn't do this. Um, people who came before us did. And there are folks alive today who have been deeply impacted by that history, whose lives continue to be impacted by that history. More after the break. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. And I'm Michael Guidry. Today is Confederate Memorial Day in Mississippi, and April is Confederate Heritage Month, according to a proclamation signed by Governor Reeves a few weeks ago. Reeves has issued that proclamation each year of his governorship thus far. So, too, did a generation of Mississippi governors before him, including Republicans Kirk Fordyce, Haley Barber, and Phil Bryant, as well as Democrat Ronnie Musgrove. Reeves' proclamation this year seems to make indirect reference to the racist history of the Confederacy. It reads in part, as we honor all who lost their lives in this war, the Civil War, it is important for all Americans to reflect upon our nation's past, to gain insight from our mistakes and successes, and to come to a full understanding that the lessons learned yesterday and today will carry us through tomorrow if we carefully and earnestly strive to appreciate and understand our heritage and our opportunities which lie before us. MPB reporter Kobe Vance asked the governor about the proclamation last week. What is Confederate Heritage Month to you? How do you define it? And have you read the Mississippi Declaration of Succession? And what do you think that about that message and it contains? The, the, the resolution that I signed with respect to April uh, speaks for itself. It's, it's very clear. Uh, it's the same resolution that's been signed by uh, now five governors. Uh, and, and so the, the reality is, um, while I know you all want to keep asking that question, I'm going to keep answering it the same way. Um, and, and, and so uh, I appreciate the opportunity to answer I respect our our political leadership. That's Von Gordon. I think they have a difficult job, but I'm, I'm reminded of Frederick Douglass's quote about the Civil War, where he said the Civil War was not a, a, a mere strife for territory and dominion, but a contest of civilization against barbarism. Leslie Burrell-McLemore agrees with Gordon. 
it holds on to a time when uh, black people were enslaved and were property and uh, did not have rights or were denied even being human because we were styled as property. And quite frankly, it makes a mockery of the democracy that we have in this country and in the state of Mississippi. It's a cop-out. That's Ty Sigley. To think about that you're, you're wanting to say that we want to look at this without honoring it, but it does honor it. To have Confederate Memorial Day in April, there can be no other reason. So when you're saying the heritage of, of the Confederacy, what does it honor? And we can't let the smell of gunpowder seduce us about looking at battles or looking at armies. We've got to realize the purpose. And no one has ever had a worse purpose for going to war than the Confederates did. I asked Ty, if the Confederate soldiers from whom so many Mississippians, white and non-white, are descended, fought for an unjust cause, how should we deal with that history today? Just because we, are, we have had this problem in our past doesn't mean that we're not a great country, doesn't mean that we can't be patriotic about it. But, but as James Baldwin, the great writer, once said, said, I love my country more than any other, and that's why I must criticize her. Just because you look at this honestly doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you a good person for dealing with your own history. And we can do this. As Americans, as Mississippians, we can do this. I have faith in our country, but the only way to have faith in your country is to be honest about its past. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Deep South Dining. Then at 10, it's Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio.